Well, this afternoon, uh, we are taking a uh, short, oh, I should say diversion from our normal schedule of things, as, uh, as mentioned in the email, as well as this week's email, as well as mentioned in the announcement last week. Uh, for the, this week and next week, we're going to be having a, a series talking about uh, the doctrine that is probably the most fundamental and found, the fundamental and foundational doctrine of Christianity, and that's who our God is, built upon what is revealed in the scriptures. Uh, that is the Trinity. Uh, the uh, God is Trinity, and we're going to be talking about that the next two weeks. Two weeks, uh, in part, but actually mainly, uh, in order to explain and give the biblical basis for uh, a proposed revision to our Articles of Faith, which is not so much a change as it is a restoration uh, to original language that was that's been in the confessions that was not part uh, that's churches historically confessed through the ages, uh, but in the 19th and 20th century, kind of fell by the wayside. And so restoring some of that language. We'll be talking about why that is um, and what, what the biblical basis for it is, as well as why it is important for us. <clears throat> We're going to be working from a couple of principal texts today that set the tone, if you will, uh, for what we'll be dealing with today. Uh, first of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then also from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through through 20. Also known as the Great Commission, it also reveals a great truth to us about our God. And G, uh, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are our principal texts. We'll be looking at a, quite a few scriptures today, but they will all have reference to those. Let us open with a word of prayer. Father, blessed be your most holy name, our God, who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, who has revealed to him, himself to us as existing eternally as the Father, as the Son, as the Holy Spirit. One God, one eternity, one unity, one will, one glory, one power. Existing eternally in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we approach this topic, help us to do so right and appropriately looking to your word, looking to your truth, and to do so with reverence and awe for as the matters of what we are talking about. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
When I was in seminary, I had a number of professors, but one of the professors, Jeff Bingham, in Systematic Theology 1, when he got into the section about the doctrine of God, he normally wore um, the, mad, the minimum requirements, of, which was a, uh, a typical three-piece, uh, two-piece suit with a tie. That day, he came in wearing a tuxedo. And of course, we were all wondering what was going on, uh, wearing a tuxedo with the tails and everything like that. And he explained, he said, as we enter into what we're going to be talking about today, what we are entering into is not a casual event or a casual topic, but what we are entering in and what we are entering into is not a jeans and t-shirt topic. But he said it is a formal black tie affair. It is not even an affair for a suit, but rather it is an affair for a tuxedo. And of what he was speaking of is the doctrine of God. And this is true. For one thing we must keep before us when we think about God is this. The most important thought we will think is what we think when we think about God. For it will determine every other dimension of our existence. The most important thought we will ever think is what we think when we think about God for it will determine every other dimension of our existence. And today, speaking of this idea of the Trinity, this absolute truth of the Trinity, is something that is often neglected. But yet, this truth is the foundation and linchpin of Christian theology built upon the Holy Scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. It is what makes Christianity, Christianity, who our God is. And what makes the gospel, the gospel. It is the truth upon which our entire relation to God is built. In fact, our confession of faith says that, and the proposed revision says the same, that it is the foundation upon which our whole relationship to God is built. And yet it is also often very much in the back burner of our thinking. In fact, sometimes it's reflected in, our, in the way we pray. Now, as I've said before, when we pray, it's not a formula that we say Father and we say in Jesus' name, but it's a posture. We pray to the Father through Jesus Christ. And yet, sometimes the way we pray may betray our misunderstanding of the Trinity. For we will say, Father, and offer our prayers, and then say, in your name. And we, have confused the per- we are confusing the persons of the Trinity when we do that. Now, just because somebody does that, I'm not going to go out and declare them a modalist. Don't worry. <laughs> Rather, what, I, what, I, what it's showing is showing how we don't often think through these things and try to relate things to what God has revealed. The doctrine of the Trinity, as we have it formulated, was not something that immediately came out of the first century of Christianity, but what we have is a reaction to a number of different controversies, as well as in reaction, it is a reaction to, to various different false and unbiblical teachings regarding who Christ is and who the Son is, of course, who is the Son, 
in relationship to the Father. And over the centuries, the Bible was mined in order to develop and say, what is the relationship of the Father to the Son and of the Father and the Son to the Holy Spirit? And out of that, we got various different uh, <clears throat> different statements, such as what we call the Nicene Creed, the Council or the, Chalcedon, or the, the, the formula of Chalcedon, as well as the Athanasian Creed, which is actually one of my favorite historical documents of Christianity, as well as in addition to the Nicene Creed called the, Consta- the, uh, the Creed of Constantinople. And this has been something that if we read throughout our church history, and by church history, I don't mean just through, the, just through the last 100 years. I don't mean through the last 200 years. I don't even mean going back to 1517, which is regarded as the uh, beginning of the Reformation. I mean going back all the way to the beginning. We see this is at the forefront. Yet in the 19th and the 20th century, in large part because of modernism, which is a way of thinking, it's a school of thinking that is all about rooted in uh, looking inward and figuring out what we can, that life is about what we can experience or what we can derive from in ourselves. And Christians, of course, are never immune from the culture around us. We are, we are part, we are, we are influenced by our culture far more than the way, far more than we want to be. We are products of that. And that shows in that in the 19th and 20th century saw a significant departure from anchoring our biblical interpretation within the history of interpretation. In fact, because of the idea of uh, the idea going, saying that I, truth is going to be found in myself by my own reason, we began to say, well, then I'm just going to read the Bible as if I'm the first and best to ever read it. That's a very prideful and arrogant statement. As if I'm the first and best to ever read it. And as a result, some language of the Nicene, and also as a result of uh, threats or uh, attacks upon the divinity of Christ, some language from the ancient church, uh, particularly in the Nicene Creed, in, in systematic theology, in the approaches of different systematic theologies, was left out due to concerns that it could undermine their apologetic concerns regarding the divinity of Christ. One of my theological heroes, B.B. Warfield, did this in which he left out language regarding the relationship of the Father to the Son and the Father and the Son of the, to the Holy Spirit regarding what we call the eternal generation of the Son and the eternal spiration of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Now, we're going to be talking about those things next week. But uh, we want to lay the foundation for that. And that's led to a range of developments over the last 120, 150 years such as something called social Trinitarianism, which affirms the Trinity, as we're going to talk about today, but looks at the Trinity from the standpoint of human social relations and often uses the relations of the Trinity to argue for their preferred view of the way human society or human family should work. Whether it would be absolute egalitarianism or some sort of hierarchical structure, the Trinity is used to defend their particular viewpoint. 
one that has arisen within Bible-believing circles, is one called the eternal functional subordination of the Son, or the eternal subordination of the Son, that held by those who are con- confess Christianity, they hold, in lar- they hold to the historic faith, in order to defend how, in order to defend what we call complementarianism, which we affirm, they say they turn the Trinity into a model for complementarianism. Mess with the Trinity to say that it's built into the Trinity, so it's built into humanity, and in so doing, actually undermine, even though they don't actually confess that they do logically, and where it will lead is it undermines the absolute equality. of the the Son to the Father, and so forth and so on. And we'll talk about those next week as well. And so for the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about the Trinity as well as explaining and, in so doing, explaining the biblical basis for the language we wish to restore to our confession of faith and the importance of it and how it protects us from both Trinitarian heresy as well as language that can undermine, well, not outright heresy, can undermine orthodox teaching on who God is. Orthodox not mean like Greek Orthodox, but Orthodox meaning straight teaching, right teaching. We'll see the basic idea today. One divine and eternal unity in which is three persons of all the same substance, all of the same substance, will, power, and glory. Next week, we'll look at the, what we call the eternal relations of, this trinity, of the Trinity in the Trinity itself. Today, we're going to be looking at the basic biblical grammar of the Trinity to set the basis, which we're not changing any of that because that's already there in our confession of faith. We're not proposing to change any of that. Um, we'll also, and, and mentioned last week, we're going to look at the simplicity, what we call the simplicity of God and the Trinity as well. And we'll mention what that means in a moment. But earlier we mentioned uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And we've titled this sermon series, The Glory of the Consubstantial Trinity. Now, consubstantial means substance with or substance together. That the Trinity all have the same substance together. And actually based it, I must say it's not original to me. I based it on a book on my bookshelf called Giving Glory to the Consubstantial Trinity. So I want to give uh, credit to uh, <clears throat> uh, the author of that book, whom I didn't write down in his name. I forgot his name. So, But we mentioned earlier Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Just so it's fresh in our minds, let us hear that again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Notice what our Lord says about himself here. What the beginning point of our understanding of who God is. He doesn't state there is one God, although there only is one God. He's not saying I am the only God, though he does assert that elsewhere. He is stating about himself, I am one. I am one. I am one. That is, he is a unity. That is our starting point in understanding God in his relationship to himself in Trinity. In that, 
He is one, a unity. That is, he cannot be and must not be divided into parts. That brings up also the simplicity of God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses going before God saying, Whom shall I say sent me? And in Exodus three fourteen, God says, tell them, uh, when, tell them, I am that I am. That's a simple statement, declaring what we call the simplicity of God. God is the same God who made the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob is still that same God. He has not changed any. He is always all that he is. And being one means that God does not, God, God does not have etern, any, God does not have an eternal existence. He is eternal existence. He does not have holiness. He is holiness. He does not have righteousness. He is righteousness. He does not have love. He is love. He does not have grace. He is grace. And he is all of these at the same type. Not a little bit of holiness of, at the same time. Not a little holiness, a little righteousness, and, if, and some sort of an algebraic equation where you put all these together, all these parts together, and you have God. He's not made up of parts. He is unity, which means Everything that God is, he always is. As we'll see, including each member of the Trinity. And we'll see the importance of that coming up. But he is one. We also see, and all by itself, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is not a proof text for the fact that in this unity there is an element of diversity. Genesis chapter 126 by itself is not a proof text, but in light of progressive revelation, that is God's more and more revealing himself through the scriptures, it does mean something. Genesis 126, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God said, let us make, make man in our image. Now, there are those who argue that the hour there is referring, he's speaking to angels or in, a, in a, uh, a view that kind of actually skirts right on the edge of polytheism, that he's speaking to a divine council made up of lesser gods of which he is the chief god. Um, <clears throat> but that does not fit within the overall canon of Scripture. When we read it progressively, we can understand this as God giving an incipient Trinitarianism. But in Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, again, understood in light of Matthew chapter 22, verse 24. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Notice this is from David's perspective. David is, is as he's watching something. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, Jesus harnesses that in Matthew chapter 22, verse 24. And he says, forty-four, I mean, not, not twenty-four. Starting in verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? 
They said to him, it's the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus is actually making a, a, a statement about himself here, that the Christ is this other Lord here. The Lord said to my Lord. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is also found in Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of our Lord. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we'll be, hold on to that, we're going to be using this one next week as well. You are my son, today I have begotten you. I must ask you, when is it today for God? Always, always, for eternity, it's today for God. And so whatever this means, with regards to my son, today I've begotten you, it is always the son is begotten of the father. What that means, we'll talk about next week. But I will say it does not mean that the son is is created, nor does it mean that the son is lesser God. So we'll hold on to that one for next week. And we and now the other passage we looked at, uh, we mentioned earlier, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said to them, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Take note here in which he's given us the command uh, to make disciples. That's reality, the one command he's giving, make disciples. Going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. But here when he speaks about baptizing, he gives a formula of sorts. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Now, how many names are there? There are three names there, or there are three titles, we might say. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he does not say in the names of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, but rather in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What does this indicate? It indicates diversity and indicates unity. It indicates in the Godhead there is unity in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet indicates there are three who exist together. And we'll see that in light of other scriptures in just a moment. Again, here we're seeing part of the art of doing theology. We have inherited from the last century and a half or so of doing theology, of only doing theology from the standpoint of what is explicitly stated in the text of Scripture. And if we can't find something that says this, then we don't adopt it. However, that's not the proper way to read Scripture. Because what Scripture is necessarily contains is there, and good and necessary consequences of what the Scripture explicitly states and what is implied in the Scripture are how we do theology. And this is partly an exercise in that. 
But in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this communicates an authority that is by being baptized with the authorization of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Under the authorization and bringing them under the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the unity that we have there. We also see John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is one that probably many of us have uh, memorized. So happens I was required to memorize it in Greek. Now, I'm not going to give it to you in Greek because that would be meaningless. But uh, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. In these very simple statements, we have revealed to us a profundity. That is something that is extraordinarily profound. In the beginning was the word. So for something to be there in the beginning would mean that it was there before the beginning was there. Or, and this is how our words fail us, before there was a before. Before there was a before. That makes no logical sense, but we can't comprehend infinite eternity where there is no before and after. But before there was a before, he was there. It also says that this one who is the word exists in a face-to-face relationship with God. And the word was with God. The word was toward God. The idea of it communicating, being with God, existing face to face with God. And so far at this point, uh, most cults could agree with us. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses could agree with us here. Even Mormons could agree with us at this point. But then it goes at one further point where they then depart from us or we depart from them. It is this. And the word was God. So this one who exists in a face-to-face relationship with God is everything God is. For one to be God is to be, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So while he's spoken of here as distinct from God in some sort of a face-to-face relationship, he is himself God. And this one was in the beginning with God. So what we see here, and of course, all by this self, uh, one moment, all, all, all by this text, all by itself, without other scripture, we, as well as the rest of the book of John, we have no idea who this word is. Uh, this word is the one we know as uh, Jesus Christ. We know this word is the eternal son, which was united to the human nature without division or confusion in the person of Jesus Christ. And so according to his divinity, he is all this. The question of the Trinity begins with the nature of this one called the word, who is also God. This one who is the Word, who is face-to-face with God, and who is God. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, verses 
uh, 22 through 30. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Plainly, Jesus answered them, I told you, I told you, do not believe the works that I do in my Father's, in my, in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they never perish, so that no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Notice here how he interchangeably talks about the Father doing things and him doing the same thing. It's not that he is the Father, but he is doing everything the Father does. He says, I and the Father are one. Again, we have unity and we have diversity at the same time. John, 8, John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is being challenged and he says, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And they say, no, we are of, the fa- of our father, Abraham. And Jesus went to say, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Understood in light of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Hear the significance of what is being said there. He is saying... The I am, I am everything the I am is. I pre-existed Abraham, but yet he's only 33 years old. For according to his divinity, he was in the beginning and he was with God. Now understanding that God is one, if he's with God and, he's, and, he, and he was God, that existing in a face-to-face relationship and being God, remember God is one. Thus he is always all that he is. So eternally, he exists in face-to-face relationship with God, and eternally, this, this one who is the Word is God. Thus he can say, I and the Father are one. When we start talking about language, and we're going to mention it and mention some of the verses today, we just heard one. The scripture speaks about begottenness. That's important to remember. John chapter 1, back there, John chapter 1, verse 3, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this one who was in the beginning with God, and who was God, it says everything was made through him. So those first three, those first three words of the Gospel of John in the beginning, to a Jewish reader, and to someone familiar with the, rest, with the scriptures in our modern age, would probably remind us of something. Where else in the Bible does it say in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. How is it that the world was created? How is it he created light when there was no light? God said, let there be light, and there was light. He brought creation into existence by speaking it into existence. By his word. By his word, he created all things. That is his word which proceeded from him. His word which exists as long as he exists. Consider Colossians 1, 15 through 17, in which it is unambiguously stated that the Son is the image of the invisible God and that all things were created through him and for him. This is language that points us to someone who is divine, who is everything God is, who reveals to us everything God is. At the end of, the, of John chapter 1, at the end of the prologue, uh, we have a statement about this God who is revealing, this word who is revealing uh, God to us, who is revealing uh, who God is to us. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God except the only begotten God, or some manuscripts say Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, that no one, that one has made him known. So let's hear both ways of reading this. No one has seen God except the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, that one has made him known. Or no one has seen God except the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, that one has made him known. Again, what do we see here? Who has seen God? None of us, no human, after Adam, has truly seen God. In fact, we could argue that Adam saw the revelation of God in the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God. Just as Moses saw the Word of God, the revelation of God. But who has seen God? No one except this one who is called the only begotten God. The only one who, whatever begotten means, and we'll talk more about that next week. The only generated God is another way way we might say that. Um, Who is in the bosom of the Father. Again, he's God, and he's in the bosom of the Father. And he's begotten of God, uh, the bosom of the Father. This one begotten of the Father, who is everything the Father is, reveals to us God and makes God known to us. So we see this unique relationship between the Father and the Son also in John five nineteen through 24. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, That the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The greater works than these will will he show him, 
so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Notice what he says here. To honor the Son, while the Son is not the Father, is to honor the Father. Why would that be? Because both are God and they are one. Now you may say, this is making no sense to me. How can that be? Now, in our modern age, again, modernism left no room whatsoever for mystery. Left no room whatsoever for God being having an element that we really can't truly know him as he knows himself. Because everything can be figured out and understood perfectly. But there's an, we, this, what we are seeing here is we are seeing the fact that God is not us. We are not to reduce God to a crude illustration. As we'll see in a moment, in a little bit, how every single illustration that we come up with, even the one that I think really helps a lot, ends up, if you follow it, in heresy. Every single illustration. But to honor the Son is to honor the Father. The Father raises the dead and gives life. The Son gives life to whomever he will. So the Son does what the Father does. The Son has the same authority as the Father. Now you say, okay, so we've got the Father and the Son, but what about this Holy Spirit You meant that was mentioned in, in uh, Matthew chapter 28 and also in Genesis chapter 1? What about the Holy Spirit? Again, back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, in the beginning, who was there? God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was there. So we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. We see that the Spirit of God is right there in the beginning, just as the Word is there in the beginning. John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Notice the language there, that he will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. But this one whom he is sending is being sent by the Father and the Son. And that, of course, that as we read, is speaking of the Spirit. And he also says in John 16, when speaking about the Spirit, that what does the Spirit do but testify about the Son, not about himself? What is that reflecting? Unity. Reflecting unity. Everything the Father and the Son does, everything the Father and the Son is, 
so the Spirit. And you say, that's a grammatical error. You said everything the Father and the Son is, so is the Spirit. That was an intentional grammatical error because of the unity of the Godhead. Romans 8, verses 9 and 10 speak of the Spirit. And if you want, if you want this so you can remember all the verses, I'll give it to you. So, um, <clears throat> You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of the sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What do we see here? In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. We see interchanging of the Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ. This is not to say that the Spirit is both the Father and the Spirit is Christ is Christ or the Son, but everything the Father and the Son is, so is the Holy Spirit. We see unity here. Romans 8, 27 and 28. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf according to the will of God. In fact, we'll read that just uh, so we can... <clears throat> You don't have to take my word for it. Romans 8, verses 27 and 28. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those... those um, yeah, 20, yeah, 27 and 28. 27, 28 uh, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who love God, all uh, for those who are called according to his purpose. I butchered that. Um, But Romans uh, 8, verse 27. um, Also, verse 26 before that, likewise, the spirit helps us in helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The spirit of God intercedes for us. and And it says the spirit of God that is, now this is not some sort of experiential thing where we're praying and we don't not know what to pray and some sort of groaning just overtakes us. That's actually a view of that. This is actually something happening behind the scenes that is not something that we are conscious of. The Spirit of God is taking our prayers and translating them according to the will of God. But what does it say about the Spirit of God? It says... The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Also, the Spirit knows what is in the what is the mind, uh, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, and he tests he intercedes according to the will of God. Who knows the will of God? God. So, what is this asserting about the Spirit? The Spirit is. Also remember back to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which I believe today is our benediction. This is a famous and frequently used benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It starts here with the idea of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a benediction that is keyed to that. But here, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that we know? We know the love of the Father. 
through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father, what is it that we know? We know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We have these three persons, one unity. One unity, one power, one will, one being, one eternity. Even at the baptism of Jesus, when he was baptized, we have a we have a Trinitarian baptism. There's no John didn't say I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we have Jesus there, and the voice of God came and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he saw the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove. Now the modalist, the one who would argue, and I'll explain that in just a little bit, the modalist who would say that uh, the Trinity, there is no Trinity, rather there's just one unity, and that unity appears to us as Father sometimes, sometimes as Son, and sometimes as the Holy Spirit. I don't know what they do with what's going on there. And so here we can say, all that the Father is, so is the Son. All that the Father and Son is, so is the Spirit. One will, one power, one glory, one essence or substance. Not three wills, not three essences, not three glories, not three powers. One will, one power, one glory, one essence or substance. We'll see how some of the things such as social, next week how things like social Trinitarianism actually end up, even though, end up, logically speaking, if followed with three wills, three powers, three glories. And how, seeing how, seeing that the eternal, it's the eternal, what we call the eternal relations of origin protects us from that. And that's what's in the bold print, the the regular bold print in your uh, handout there. Three persons existing within that eternal and divine unity in relation to one another. There is no hierarchy within the Godhead. There is no hierarchy. It is not that the Son is lesser than the Father, nor is it that the Son has a separate will that submits to the Father. And the Spirit has a separate will that says, okay, Father and Son, I'll go. But a unity. We might say, well, what about passages like John 14, 28? Well, John 14, 28, let's read that just for the purpose of, so we can, again, you're not taking my word for it. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you'd have rejoiced because I am going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. There are those who would say that this is indication that uh, the Father is greater than the Son and thus the Son is under a hierarchy, the Father. But again, he had just promised earlier when he said he's going to send the Spirit at the, uh, and requesting the Father that he would ask the Father to be sent. 
Now it says that he is less than the Father, and we've seen that the Father and the Son are one. In John 10, he has equal authority. How does that work? He's speaking of himself. In John chapter 14, in asking to send this, in asking to go into the Father and asking to send the Spirit after he goes away and he is, has completed his work of redemption according to his human nature and he's now restored to his glory. And he and the Father are sending the Spirit. Here he is speaking himself in his present state according to his human nature. And according to his human nature, he is, the Father is greater than him. Just as in Hebrews 1, he was made for a little while lower than the angels according to his human nature. Got to remember, in the person of Jesus, we have two natures, divine nature and a human nature, a divine will and a human will, a human soul. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse three. <clears throat> but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of head, uh, head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. You might say here we see God is the head of Christ. So thus the son is eternally subordinate to the father. But again, when we see this word Christ the Christ was a promised one who would come according to human, who would come to us as a human. This is according to the human nature. So in John, so in the sum, summary, in John fourteen six, in John fourteen earlier he was speaking about after he returns to the Father, he's no longer in their presence face to face. Here, there he was speaking about his human nature in John 14, 28. And in 1 Corinthians eleven three, he's speaking about the anointed one, the Messiah, the man, Jesus Christ, the union of the divine nature to the human nature, according to his work as redeemer and the final Adam, according to his humanity. This is not speaking of the son according to his divinity. And as we'll speak about next week, um, when we deal with uh, the relations within the Trinity will talk more about things like subordination of the Son and things like that um, <clears throat> in more detail. But that's been a, a ex- thing that exploded in 2016 and it's a raging concern right now, that whole argument about what we call the eternal subordination of the Son. But what we do know, according to this gra- basic grammar, There are several false approaches that we must never go near. The first is tritheism. Now, what do we hear when we hear tritheism? Monotheism means one God. Polytheism means multiples of God. So what would tritheism mean? Three gods. So tritheism would say that there are three gods that are in face-to-face with one another, or maybe they don't ever see each other. And they may even be equal, but they are not one power, one will, one glory, one substance, one eternity. Rather, three different gods. 
Another false approach is Unitarianism. You, you may have seen, I don't think we have one here on, on Whidbey Island, I may be wrong, but you may have seen churches in different, well, buildings in certain areas where a group of people known as Unitarian Universalists meet. Well, their universalism, that, that's explanatory. Unitarian means has reference to Christianity. They are a, a largely American movement um, that descended from the late 18th century, which was very prominent even among a number of folks who would be founders of the country in which we live, Unitarianism, that would say the Father is God, but the Son is not, nor is the Spirit. Because there can only be one there can only be one person. And so those are Unitarians. They, uh, those who denied the existence of the Trinity. Only the Father is God. The Son is more of, if anything, a demiurge. A demiurge, you may know. What is that? Well, that comes from <clears throat> uh, Greco-Roman, Greek and Roman thinking in that there is uh, a Gnostic thinking in which there's uh, an all-perfect God and various different, and all the other gods are extensions of that God, but not that God himself or itself. There's also Arianism, very similar to Unitarianism. Arianism is, is named after a man by the name of Arius, A-R-I-U-S, not Arian with a Y, but Arian with an I. And this was from, uh, in the the 300s, there was a man named Arius who, among others, had this idea that uh, from Proverbs chapter, from the Proverbs where it spoke about wisdom and wisdom coming from God and wisdom being created by God, that the Son, being begotten of God, this is a misunderstanding of begotten, being begotten, because that's the language the Bible uses, is just like wisdom. And so while the Father is eternal and the Son pre-existed, cre- pre-existed creation, he was nonetheless created at some point. In fact, their statement was, there was a when, when he was not. However, how could one pre-exist creation if that one himself is created? How could one pre-exist creation if that one himself is created? Now, of course, there was a whole series of councils that were called for the purpose of sorting this out. The Nicene Council being the first. And a number after that, there was the, um, the Council of Chalcedon, which didn't deal with that directly, but indirectly. So there were Arianism. The uh, modern-day descendants of Arians uh, can be found probably on Saturday afternoon, walking around town in uh, very nice clothes, knocking on doors, passing out, uh, passing out little booklets called the Watchtower. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they are Arians. That is a heresy. It is what we call a damnable heresy. The same with tritheism, same with Unitarianism. It is something that places us outside of Christianity. There's also subordinationism. That the Son is, is, while he is God, he is lesser than the Father. Now, when we talk about the eternal subordination of the Son, 
They argue that he was equal to the Father, but he is subordinate to the Son. He is a subordinate to the Father. And we'll see next week how that is can detriment, but none of them would confess that Jesus the Son is lesser than the Father. I want to exclude them from this charge of, of this kind of subordinationism. But the Son is lesser than the Father, and the Spirit is lesser than the Father and the Son. That there's a hierarchy of natures. That, too, places us outside of Christianity. There's also adoptionism. That there is no eternal son. That the, the one we know is the son was not the eternal son. There's a, a prominent teacher whom I will not name who used to hold to this. Who used to hold to the, who denied that the, the son is eternal. There was a when when he became the son. This, uh, and of course that happened when uh, they would argue that it is baptism he was Adopted. Now that person has since repented of that of that faulty teaching. Um, thus, I won't name the person. So, um, <clears throat> there's also modalism. That is, they get right that there's unity, that God is one, and only one God, but they deny. The simultaneous, simultaneous and eternal existence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God, the Father, and sometimes he's the Son, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. That's modalism. Different modes of revelation. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a couple of different um, groups today within that, that, that teach that. Uh, you might have heard of the United Pentecostal Church. That's an actual denomination. Not all Pentecostals believe this. Okay, don't 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 hear that from me, please. Okay, but an actual group called the United Pentecostal Church. There's a group called the Apostolic Churches. Follow the same thing. The Assemblies of God actually have one have a very well developed doctrine of the Trinity, in part because they had to fight these battles back in the 1920s. But the United Pentecostal churches will say this, that there is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and his name is Jesus. And so sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. That's how, how they understand in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name, that name being Jesus. That's how they understand I and the Father are one, that he is the Father. Thus they argue that... <clears throat> that one must be baptized specifically in the name of Jesus. So that, that actually undoes the independence of God. For in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in, in the Holy Trinity... The Father is loving the Son, and the Son and the Son is loving the Father, and the Father and the Son are loving the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is loving the Father and the Son, yet the same will. Now, if you try to wrap our heads around that, of how all that works, you'll probably end up dizzy. Just like if I try to think about how God had no beginning, and really try to think about that, about there's never been a when when God was not, and you really try to think about how that works, you'll end up dizzy. 
Just like if I think, if sometimes I go, just like if I think about how I know that I exist. I mean, my, what is my consciousness? And how do I know my consciousness? And do other people feel the same way about their consciousness? Have the same self-perception of their own conscious existence? And, so, and I don't think about that too much. But there's times that I have. But certain things will make us dizzy, and that will, the, thinking too much about that and trying to figure it out and trying to put it into a box is going to make us dizzy. We must simply exist this truth. There is one God who is one. This one God exists eternally as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this one God, and, and this, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all the one God yet exist in face-to-face relationships with one another. What their interpersonal relationship is, with language like begetting and things like that, are things we'll talk about next week. But, and how actually that actually protects this doctrine. The biblical language there protects this. So here, we have one God, one substance, one will. There's differing personal properties and relations, and how we define those properties is vital. We'll also be looking at next time talking about the difference between what we call the imminent trinity. That's imminent with an A, not an I in the middle. And the economic trinity. That's the trinity within itself and the trinity acting in history. And then we'll also need to take into account the natures of Jesus according to his human nature. One person with two natures. So next week we'll be looking at deficient approaches, particularly modern errors. But one thing we can, we can see here is that we have one God who eternally exists, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this one God works as in the unity of the will, the person, the power, the will, the being, the power, the eternity, acting eternally to redeem his people. In that when the, in the Son and his redemption has redeemed us as one who is everything God is. The Spirit who dwells within us is everything God is. is, the one, is, is and all, all are the one God. All, we could say it properly. All, all three is the one God. The three who is one and the one who are three. How's that? The three who is one and the one who are three. But Christianity, this is the foundation of Christian belief and practice, who God is. And so this week and next week, let's give due attention to this. Let us pray. Father, blessed be your name, and we thank you for the self-revelation of yourself. We ask that you would make yourself known to us more and more. We pray that you'd make clear to us who you are. We pray that you would help us to get better, have a, uh, an even more refined and continued refining grasp of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, something I wanted to bring up before, I forgot to bring these up, two really helpful books that have helped me walk through this. I highly recommend them. This is the first one I would recommend you'd read. Okay? 
It's called The Trinity and Introduction by Scott R. Swain. Um, Short Studies in Systematic Theology. The second one is by Matthew Barrett uh, called Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. I highly recommend those two books. 